kingdom of the planet of the apes has arrived in IMAX. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Amy, uh, today's show is brought to you by The Bechdel Cast. It's a podcast on the How Stuff Works network about the representation of women in movies. I actually really like this podcast because uh, their hosts, Jamie and Caitlin, do this kind of examination of movies through uh, a feminist lens. Movies like Star Wars or Frozen or Jurassic Park, they kind of shift your perspective on films to kind of talk about it in a way that I've never really experienced. Uh, they have a great episode on Love Actually, which you have to listen to. Oh, man, really? Oh, Well, they also have one on Twilight, which I'm just going to say, I have a lot of complicated feelings about the sure. feminism in Twilight, so I want to hear what they have to say. Well, if you want to check out the Bechdel cast, you can listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Bechdel cast, available wherever you get podcasts. The year is 1981. And he's the last cool man to wear a fedora. His name, Indiana Jones, and he's a raider of the Lost Ark. Welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I'm Amy Nicholson. And this is the show where we go through the AFI's top 100 films of all time list to find out are these films worthy of being held in such high esteem or are they a remnant of a bygone era? Oh, something you bury in a tomb and dig up in a thousand years and then feels precious? Yeah, I know. Just like they said in our movie today. Well, we'll get into that in a little bit. Um... Amy, great reaction to the Psycho episode. Yeah, I think we lucked out with the die rolling it in the creepy month of October. I know. I'm very excited that we actually had a horror movie. And, you know, one of the big things that we talked about was, is this movie still engaging to people? Because, you know, does everybody just know the secret of this film? And we found out from a lot of people, especially on Twitter, that... Um, they watched this film with a group of like 19-year-olds who didn't know anything about it and the scares still worked. And that actually made me really excited that we're not jaded, that a movie that is as simple as this can still be as effective. 
You know, uh, Bill Massey on Twitter brought up something very interesting. We talked a little bit about the music and the way that Hitchcock kind of directed the film like it was an orchestra. But Bill Massey brings out that Bernard Herrmann's score was all strings, no brass or winds, because he wanted a monochromatic score to match the black and white of the film. I think that's also maybe Hitchcock being really poor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. I like that, too. I think that that they dovetail together, poverty and art. Well, on Twitter, at the later Reva wrote, Two of Hitchcock's worst fears were showcased in the movie, the police and sex. He was absolutely terrified of both. Can you be that sort of terrified where you're like terrified but also like, yeah? Yeah, yeah, fascinated. Like that kind of thing of like you want to look at it. It's like looking at a a car accident on the side of the road. I guess that's actually Norman Batesian. Yeah. Uh, sorry, uh, the lady, the lady Reva continues. When we see the officer pull over Marianne, his face and glasses fill up the entire screen, and we're meant to feel intimidated, as if we're keeping the secret. And I love that shot so yeah, me much. Too. That policeman just looming into view. To me, like my my modern analog is always like Terminator Two. Yes, but just looking so cold and impassive. It's oh, he's terrifying. Yeah, you can't read his expression, and because of that, it literally makes you feel uneasy. You don't know where you stand in that moment. It's true. And the Lady Reva finishes by saying that Hitchcock uses film as a true coping mechanism for his anxieties while making all of us feel it. She says that is genius. I agree that it is genius. It's also kind of mean. Like, oh, man, we're taking on your anxieties now? Thanks, dude. (laughs) I mean, like all good directors. You know, I wanted to ask you this question because our friend Jack Christensen brought this up. He says, I can't think of a single other movie where we follow one main character for the first half and then that character dies halfway through the movie and then we follow a completely different main character for the second half. Um, you would think that would be imitated more. I mean, Full Metal Jacket definitely is split up into two parts, but it's not the same thing as Psycho. Amy, you've seen a ton of movies. Is that something that jumps out to you? I mean, we do sort of things where we have, like, characters played by different people. Yeah. So they're changing and growing and shaping, and we get to see, like, different fractured sides of yeah. them. But, yeah, it is weird that we don't have more. I like it. I mean, I'm, I'm a complete nihilist, so I'm like, kill every character. Let's no, do all of it. But I think it actually works, I think, in a weird way. It kind of reminds me of what's going on in TV. You know, you may start off with Sean Bean in Game of Thrones, but the whole show kind of changes. And same thing for Breaking Bad. You know, we have a whole series now based on Bob Odenkirk's character who was a very minimal side character that was there for comic relief in that original series and now has four years of a show based on his character before the show. I I don't know. I think maybe TV is a space where you can kind of explore that. Yeah, now my brain is just into all these old, like, sitcom reruns for the 80s that I watched all the time. <laughs> like, Benson, and then Soap, and then, like... Oh, yeah. And then, uh, what, like, everything that came out of, like, Happy Days. Oh, right. Mork and Mindy came out of Happy Days. <laughs> Amy, are you ready to get into today's feature presentation? Am I ever? Let's get going. So, Amy, the year is 1981. The AIDS virus is identified in 1981. The Iran hostage crisis ends. Uh, the Yorkshire Ripper is caught. I didn't even know there was a Yorkshire Ripper. I didn't Ripper. know that either. Yeah, I want to get into that. Glad they caught him. <laughs> Post-it notes were launched. Uh, there were riots in UK cities. Uh, Anwar Sadat was assassinated. And... It was the first flight of the space shuttle Columbia. It was also the first year that the word internet was mentioned and MS-DOS was released by Microsoft along with the first IBM PC. And it's the year that Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark came out, which starred, of course, Harrison Ford, Karen Allen, Paul Freeman, John Reese davies uh, directed by Steven Spielberg, produced by George Lucas, and written by Lawrence Kasdan. What is Raiders about? 
Raiders of the Lost Ark is you have Professor Indiana Jones, who likes to go to, quote-unquote, South America to steal relics, bring them back if he can. Usually he can't, it seems. Uh, he also teaches in his spare time, and he is put into action in order to prevent the Germans from getting the Lost Ark of the Covenant, which they are digging for somewhere in Egypt because the setting is 1936. U.S. is not in the war yet, but, you know, the world's in a shaky place. we got to do what we can to prevent it. So he goes off to Egypt with his ex-girlfriend of a sort, care played by Karen Allen, to find the Ark. Amy, this movie resonates with me in a major way. I think if I was putting together my list of top five films, it would always be in my top five. I don't know if it's when I saw it or how it affected me, but I think it's the movie I've seen the most on this list, hands down. It is fun as hell. And we're going to have a guest in here in a little bit who I know really well because of this one scene in the movie that I know really, really well. Uh, because a few years ago, have you heard of the dudes who did the Shot for Shot remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark? As a matter of fact, yes, I backed their Kickstarter to finish their film. <laughs> well, I was on the set of their film as they finished it as adults Whoa. in their 40s in Mississippi as they built the flying wing and then blew it up. It was very intense. Everybody got sunburned. We'll have somebody from that whole experience later on in the show as our guest. So you but are part of Raiders of the Lost Ark history. I mean, you were there. You're there. I will say that whenever the airplane scene starts, whenever they pop out of the well yeah. of souls, all of that up until when Indy and Marion run away from the explosion, that is so deeply embedded in my spinal cord at this time that I, I could just write that whole scene. Like from, I could draw the whole thing. I could draw it better than Spielberg because Spielberg, did you know this about him? Terrible artist. Loves to storyboard, and all of his things are just stick figures. <laughs> Whenever I've directed, it's been stick figures, too. And I feel like you can't be expected to do everything really well. Have somebody else hire somebody else to do that. You know, Spielberg said that he was most prepared to direct this movie out of any movie he's ever done, uh, which I thought was really interesting. I don't think that was at the time. I think that's now looking back on things. And it's also one of the only films that he says that he can watch and actually enjoy. Like, he can really sit back and enjoy this film. I mean, to me, when you look at Raiders of the Lost Ark, especially because it's before we've gotten to E.T., it's before we've really gotten to see, I think, Kid Spielberg take over. Yeah. I think this is where you start to see that shift. Right. Where he's like, da da da, da I'm not just killing people with sharks. I'm not just having, like, Richard Dreyfus go live with aliens. Like, I got this whole other side to me that I can't wait to show you. Yeah. I mean, you know how we were talking last week about how Psycho changed the way people saw movies, mm -hmm. that you would just now show up at time to go see what the movie was. Right. Spielberg grew up in those years where it wasn't necessarily like that. His earliest memories as a kid were getting dropped off by his parents every Saturday. They'd give him 50 cents. They'd take him to the Kiva Theater in Scottsdale, Arizona, and they would just leave him there all day. They would leave him in the theater all day. He would watch everything just on this loop. For 50 cents, he would see two features, like Westerns or Tarzan movies, sometimes a good movie like Moby Dick or The Searchers. He would see, like, sci-fi stuff, monster stuff. He would see 10 cartoons. He would see Our Gang shorts, and he would see two installments of serials, the kind of thing that he lovingly just took and turned into Raiders of the Lost Ark, where guys go on adventures and mad things happen, and you can't wait to see what happens next. Clearly, this is a love letter to movies. I mean, when Lucas and Kasdan and Spielberg sat down to talk about the film they wanted to make, they each brought their unique perspective to this project. I mean, and they created this, you know, cinematic stew. You know, I think that, like, Kasdan was there to bring, like, a sense of character, and Spielberg was there to bring action, and Lucas just kind of pulled the whole thing together. Uh, but it just feels like... Filmmakers having fun. Well, yeah, and it's it's playtime. 
-hmm. you can tell that it's playtime. And in a way, it feels like it's the playtime that Spielberg was doing his whole life. Like, when he was a kid, when he was, like, 12, he was making movies in his backyard. He would get all his friends together. They made, like, this 40-minute um, short that was like a World War II short. He spent three years making it. Wow. He was like an obsessive kid. He would use all his dad's old like World War II uniforms for props. He was manic. I mean, he was just devoted to cinema, which I think is so interesting because, you know, you're a kid. It's 1958. He's making Westerns for like his Boy Scout movie badges. Right. And he is part of that generation that's just raised on cinema his whole life. And he just loved what the theater could do. He loved freaking people out in theaters. Mm -hmm. Like this one time when he was a kid, he um, they went to go see The Lost World in 1960. Right. And he made up all this fake vomit and he brought it with him into the theater. He made this like awful concoction of white bread, Parmesan cheese, cream corn, peas, milk. Brought it into the theater, pretended to throw up. And then everyone freaked out and started throwing up around him. And he started this vomit Whoa. chain reaction. Is that where the scene from Goonies comes from? Where, yeah, probably. Yeah. That, I mean, that seems like a total steal. I love that you just do that analogy. Because to me, it just reminds me that I don't know who more than Spielberg was just like, here's everything I've ever loved. And now it is mass culture. Yeah. And his stuff has longevity. I mean, we're talking about a new Indiana Jones in 2018. That's wild. Yeah, kind of to that point, that longevity that Indy has is part of why I have to fight sometimes my, like, annoyance at Spielberg. Because, mm -hmm. you know, Spielberg comes out as, a, as like, a young man in his 20s and 30s, and he's like, I'm going to do everything I've ever loved, and I'm going to put my own imprint on cinema. And we're like, great. And it's him showing love to serials and, like, the generation before. But he hasn't gone away and so right. I still sometimes feel like we're missing new, t new stories because the people who, like, right. told the stories won't leave. I kind of disagree. I think we're seeing people who are influenced by Spielberg, but then doing their own spin on it. Like, I really like what James Gunn did with Guardians of the Galaxy. That's a very similar tone to me to Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's a big world. It's a new world. It's these really brash, fun characters. And I feel like, you know, Chris Pratt in that movie has a very Indiana Jones flavor to him. You know, in the first scene, he's, you know, in this place getting this relic. You know, we don't know exactly what it is, but I think that that first scene is very similar to Raiders. I think we are finding these new voices that are twisting narratives and creating these indelible characters that hopefully will exist for 30, 40 years. I just want the baby boomers to let us breathe. But that's so interesting that you said that because I actually wrote in my notes as I was coming in to talk to you. Hey, ask Paul how you think Indiana Jones compares to Chris Pratt in oh, the wow. Guardians films. Because I was thinking about it too, but I was thinking about how Chris Pratt's character leans more into like cocky funny right. and Indy leans more into like charge ahead vulnerable. And now there's a slight difference between the two that I prefer the indie one a lot more. Well, the cockiness of Chris Pratt's character in Guardians is just covering for the fact that he doesn't have confidence. You know, and I think that Indy, you know, the way he dresses and stuff definitely is him putting on a persona because he is, and when I read that in the story document, this idea of Columbo. Like, and, and Columbo is perfect. It's a ruffled kind of a guy. Whether or not he's a good archaeologist, who knows? But he, He's a bad archaeologist. Can I just <laughs> say that? He's right. a very bad archaeologist. Why do you say so? Why do I say so? Yeah. He steals everything um, so that maybe To he'll put it back in a museum, Amy. To sell it to a museum for money. He smashes up those giant, like, 
statues when they're in the well of souls. He was gonna die. He smashes the thing that was like holding the the ark in. He's like stone tablet. Don't care. Smash it to the floor. Oh come on. That doesn't mean he's a look. He's not digging for dinosaur bones. He's surrounded by seven thousand snakes in there. He's got to get some. He's got to work a little bit quicker down there. Oh listen. He's surrounded by Nazis. I like to see any good archaeologist uh, surrounded by Nazis. Uh, you know, come on. Give As an anthropology dual major in college, okay. I just any of us who did any of this would be absolutely kicked out of school. So who's a better archaeologist, Indiana Jones or Alan Grant from Jurassic Park? Oh, Alan Grant. Not even a question. <laughs> really? Alan Grant is great. Alan Grant, I feel like, has that perfect mix of science and wonder, his love of what he does, mm-hmm. that look on his face when he gets to see a dinosaur for the first time, and yet he never quite loses track of who he is. I will say this, though. Mm-hmm. He— Harrison Ford's Indiana Jones is not as bad as, like, Tom Hanks in the Da Vinci Code books. Because, like, almost nothing has made me more mad than, like, when Tom Hanks in one of the Da Vinci Code movies is in that priceless, airless lock of rare books. And he's like, I must live. And he destroys all of these rare books. He's knocking over, like, bookshelf and bookshelf and burning them to the ground, and I want to cry. All right, let's listen to how Harrison Ford describes Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones is an archaeologist. In his spare time, he, uh, (laughs) he's a grave robber. What I think is endearing about Indiana Jones is he is not a suave character. Like, he is not James Bond. They went in with the idea that they wanted to create their own version of James Bond. That was the initial idea. And they came up with this idea of Indiana Jones. And he immediately, from the first time that we see him, He looks cool. He's got all the look and feel of the most badass person. But then immediately he's messing up and people are betraying him. And he's, you know, mismeasured the the weight of the idol. And, you know, it he's I I like that. And I think that that's a vulnerability you don't often see in action heroes that they can kind of mess up. And I, I think you're always seeing the overcompensating guy. And maybe that's part of Harrison Ford playing this character because I think that he has a, in when he's playing uh, the character in the Tom Clancy books, you know, the Jack Ryan character, it was very vulnerable. Like he, you believe him in this thing. And that, that maybe just be what Harrison Ford brings to these roles. That is interesting because, you know, even setting aside the question of is he an ethical archaeologist, mm-hmm. to which definitely not, is <laughs> he good at what he does? I mean... He gets the statue, it gets taken away. He misjudges, like, where the Ark is a couple of times. Yeah. Like, he loses the amulet. Like, he's actually failing most of the yes. time. And ultimately, at the end, he fails. Right. The Ark is taken away from him. He's tied up. He could have done nothing about it. But luckily, the Ark is evil and killed everyone. He actually fails at the end. He does nothing to do anything except keep his eyes shut. Well, then you could argue that Belloc is the better archaeologist. I mean, I th- Yeah, I think Belloc is the better archaeologist. Belloc is better at working with the local people, getting them on his side. Indy's people want to kill him. So he's hiring wrong. He's treating them poorly. Yeah. Something's going very bad. Belloc has some loyalty. Well, Belloc, who I really have come to appreciate in later viewings, is great because I think Belloc is like, I'm not going to do all the research. I'm just going to follow Indiana Jones because he'll get to where we need to go, and then I could just steal it from him. <laughs> yeah, but you know, to that kind of note that you're talking about, about Indy screwing up a lot, what I feel like it really popped out to me in this watch is that Indy is a kid's idea of a hero right. in that he's going through a kid's idea of what danger is. 
that spiders and and caves yeah. and swinging. Yeah, I mean, yeah, even like, the idea of the whip is a kid uh, a weapon. It's yeah, exactly. Like let's really drill into that opening scene because yeah. the spiders that are all over his back are giant tarantulas. Which one, once you're older, you know that those won't hurt you right. actually, and they don't do anything. They're just frozen on his back. Oh yeah, but it's that kid like terror, and it's that idea of a big spider must be worse than the spiders that will actually kill you. And then what do they do? Then they play the ultimate kids game. Don't step on a crack in the sidewalk. That's what kids do. They're playing something in here that kids who watch the movie can go home and do again. It's like it's designed to make it feel interactive for children. Which I can tell you firsthand, as a kid who saw this movie, made me want to do everything in this movie. I wanted to get a whip. I did dress up like Indiana Jones. I will post pictures of me in my badass Indiana Jones outfit. But, like, you wanted to whip things and swing on things. I can only imagine how many injuries came of kids my age who wanted to be doing everything in this movie because, you know, everything in this movie is oddly accessible. I got caught in, like, what I thought was quicksand when I was a kid. It was something in the out in, like, the forest one time. And I was like, I was quicksand. I don't think that was. but um, <laughs> And if you didn't have quicksand, at least you had, like, the floor is lava. <laughs> And oh, then, yes. can I just talk about when he gets Marion to finally kiss him? Yeah. Because that is the most childlike scene of all. We got to play that. Oh, yes. It hurts. Wow. Well, God damn it, anywhere doesn't it hurt? Cheer. Here. I love that scene. It's so endearing, but you're right. It's it's very childlike. Yeah, he's a kid in bed with his really hot mommy, and he's got a boo-boo. Oh, uh, don't, don't make her his mommy, okay. even though their age is problematic already. I mean, <laughs> let's just break down this age difference here, or supposed age difference. So uh, Indiana Jones uh, trains under Dr. Ravenwood which is Marion's dad, who apparently died in an avalanche. That's something that's not in the movie, but we can find that in the comic book adaptation. Um, and this is his daughter. And they had an affair, uh, you know, when Indy was probably in his mid-20s and she's like 15 or 16 years old, which is a pretty scandalous age difference. It's scandalous enough that I never quite realized that that is why Dr. Ravenwood isn't talking to him. I yeah. just thought it was because he was dead and they lost touch. No, he is mad because Indy had sex with his underage daughter. I know, which makes you think that Indy is a little bit of, um, it's a dirt. I mean, look, oh boy, well, now, yeah. It's a dirtbag move. And what I think is more dirtbag about it is just the way he responds when Karen, like, calls him out on it. I love Karen Allen so much, by the way. Yeah. But, like... It's fascinating to me how much I didn't really see the level of it. I thought she was just mad at him dumping her. Right. But when you really listen to what she's saying, it's incredibly actually intelligent and emotionally dead on. I need one of the pieces your father collected. I learned to hate you in the last 10 years. I never meant to hurt you. I was a child. I was in love. It was wrong and you knew it. You knew what you were doing. Now I do. This is my place. Get out. Mohan. Demigru. Bolianu. I did what I did. You don't have to be happy about it, but maybe we can help each other out now. I mean, he does not apologize. And later on when she's mad at him again, he's like, just get over it. And I was like, Indiana fucking Jones. I know. There are some moments like that. I mean, when you look at it through that lens, it does complicate things. But as a child, you look at it and you're like, oh, they're just contemporaries. You don't even think that she's younger. I want to talk about this movie 
in depth, but I also want to just talk about what it could have been right at the top, because already we've seen Harrison Ford and we just heard him. And I want you to picture what this movie would have been like if it was Tom Selleck. I mean, it was supposed to be Tom Selleck, Magnum P.I., uh, a great, fun actor. Who I think would have brought in like a more dangerous sex appeal to it. Yes, but would that have worked as well? Because I think this childlike thing that Harrison Ford has is not really there in Tom Selleck. Why don't we listen to Tom Selleck from his screen test with Sean Young playing Indiana Jones? Look, I did what I did. I don't expect you to be happy about it. But maybe it can do us both some good. Why start Just now? shut up. Shut up and listen to me. Now, I need that piece your father had. So I'm going to uh, change my opinion a bit and say he's scary sexy. I find him frightening now. Well, yeah, there was something about his intensity there that didn't seem as charming as dangerous. Yeah, exactly. I would be like, okay, fine. Here you go. Take everything. Please don't hurt me, Mr. Selleck. <laughs> I like that you like- call him Mr. Selleck, not Mr. Jones. <laughs> Selleck means Jones and mustache. Oh, okay. (laughs) And, you know, it's interesting because Lucas didn't want Harrison Ford in this movie. He was like, I don't want him to be my De Niro. Like, both films, Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford barely got these parts. It was sort of like, well, yeah, we'll read them. But, you know, it's like, and he's so great in it. It just, if you're an actor out there and you're always like, why, why am I the last choice? Don't worry about it. It happened to Harrison Ford too. It's true, but it is interesting because then when you stack together Indiana Jones and Han Solo, mm-hmm. I do feel like as time has gone by and we've spent more time with the characters, mm-hmm. there's a character bleed. Do you know, they'd sort of become well, the same kind of. And, and maybe that's over time because I was looking at uh, Harrison Ford's script for Raiders. Um, it's really cool. I think it just sold at auction. But um, he writes a lot of notes in the margins, and he's always kind of crossing out things that felt too Han Solo-like. He didn't want to be Han Solo. It was very important for him. And I think I think Han Solo is more cocky. That is more of a, a, a Han Solo trait. I don't know. It's, it's true. And maybe that's why I feel like the Indiana Jones gets weaker the cockier he gets, because he seems cocky to me by the time we get to Crystal Skull. Right. He seems like a he's different older. person. older, yeah. He definitely has an edge yeah. to him, yeah. And actually, he's more like that in Temple of Doom, too. Which, right. not to start too many fights, but I don't like Temple of Doom that much. I don't think you're going to be starting that many fights with that hot take on Temple of Doom. I, I, I feel like that's the movie that I don't think anyone puts any movie over Raiders. You know, I think you can have that argument about Star Wars. I think you have that argument about Lord of the Rings. This is one where I think Raiders always firmly stays in the number one spot. Yeah, because there's such a joy and a love. And as as much as Marion gets really shit on in most of the yeah. film, she is still so radiant and so strong in herself that I feel like that character gets a lot of respect no matter what. Whereas the Kate Capshaw in Temple of Doom, I mean, the story is that Everyone who made the movie, like Spielberg and Lucas, were like going through divorces or problem problematic mm-hmm. times in their life when they made that movie. And you just feel like they took it out on Cape Catchall's character because <laughs> she is just a screaming blonde mess. Yes, Marion would never be. No, and and you know I think that uh, I really like Ilsa in the third film. She plays the father and the son, and I love that reveal. Uh, and she was a great, uh, still is a great actress. Um, Karen Allen has, to me, one of the top ten great smiles. Oh, she's, I mean, I love her in Scrooge. Scrooge is one oh, of my favorites. It's such a great movie. Why isn't that on the list? I mean, an, an underrated 
great film. Also, by the way, when Marion puts on that gorgeous white dress with the gigantic sleeves, yeah. that is so Ginger Rogers. I think Ginger Rogers would have ripped that right off her body. Uh, amazing. And you know what? Uh, she did give uh, Spielberg a little bit of flack. She's like, why am I in this dress? And they had to kind of create a reason for her to do that. And so her and the actor who played Belloc created that kind of a scene. And I think it actually works beautifully. I mean, for her to be in that white dress for such a long time. It's true. Although when she gets dropped in the Well of Souls, having to wear peep-toed heels, I was like, oh my God, that's my nightmare. She was practically dressed before then. Though you do get this kind of lovely visual moment at the end when after the ark explodes and she's standing there with Indy and they're standing in front of this burning altar, basically holding hands. She's in a white dress and it looks a little marriage-y. It does. I guess they did get married by fire. You know, the bummer is we were talking in the last episode about how Hitchcock at the end of Psycho was like, Janet Lee, you're probably done with me. Yeah. And then she ended up just sort of being kind of done overall. Steven Spielberg actually said this about Karen. He said, when this movie's over, Karen will be ruined for life. It is, um, she's so tough. It is tattooed on her now. She may never be rid of it. Wow. Interesting. Why is it always this? Okay. (laughs) Let's talk about this movie and, and, and start at the top, which is, I, as a kid, my mind was blown, and maybe it's the first time it happened, or maybe it was the first time I saw it, but the transition from the Paramount logo, which is a mountain, into a real mountain. I was like, whoa, it just seems so, I don't know, I like that sticks out in my head, not on this viewing, of course, because I'm an adult and I understand how things work. I was still like, whoa, I mean, they had they had to scout mountains in Hawaii oh, to find that. Yeah, they took, <laughs> like, that was the, like, they had a hard time finding it. I think it took, like, a couple of days to figure out what mountain would actually, actually work. Um, and this whole opening sequence that you talk about, the way that they photograph Indiana Jones, and I wanted to talk about this throughout the film is really cool because every character that's introduced here has the best introduction. Like, bar none, if you are a filmmaker, look to this movie be like, this is how we should introduce all of our characters. Like, everyone. It's like, you would want to be like, I want to be that actor. I want to have that introduction. It's they, I want to lean right through the trees and into the frame and you give me that close-up. Oh, yeah. I mean, the first time you see Karen Allen, the first time you see Tot, you know, Belloc, it's, they all are basically like, Tipping their hat, like, and good day. It's it's like the, you know, the love boat montage where it's like, who's on today? It's like everyone gets their, their moment to kind of show you a little bit of themselves. It treats movie stars like movie stars. Yes. And it takes a minute for us to even get to see Indy's face. We well, see him it. silhouetted hat first, which I think is part of why his outfit is so iconic. You know that before you know him. It's a very cool way to kind of bring you into this world because you want him to turn around. You're on the edge of your seat. Like, who is this man? Who is this man? And when he turns around, he pays off on everything that you think. He looks and is as cool as that guy. And then quickly, I think that's the veneer that kind of goes away because he has all the appearance of being very cool. But you can find out he's a teacher and 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 kind of a, you know, a, a nerdy teacher at best. You know, he knows a lot of stuff, but he's not like a... Uh, when Marcus comes to tell him, you know, that they got the grant to go get the Ark... He's like, oh, this is amazing. Let's have a, you know, champagne. It's it, all the coolness that he shows in those scenes are, are just gone. I mean, I'm a girl. I think he's still cool. Oh, I mean, I think <laughs> I he's mean, cool. You can see how hot everybody thinks he is. Not only is there the girl who says love you on her eyelids, mm-hmm. but when you look around his classroom, it's like 75% women. Yeah. Which is crazy. I was trying to look up stats for like college enrollment for yeah. women in 1936. I couldn't find anything definitive, but I did find out that in 1936, they did a poll and they asked people how like what do you believe that married women should have a full-time job outside of the house? And guess how many Americans thought yes. How many? 15%. Wow. So a college class that's like 
three quarters women right. studying archaeology. I love, I love that. Well, I love it too. And I'm not saying that he's not hot. I'm just saying that he doesn't view himself as being hot. That's so what th- makes him extra hot. This well, is like the girl equivalent of, oh, she's beautiful, but she doesn't know it is like, oh, he's such a strong, brave man, but here he is in a tweed blazer. Oh, I, I, I mean, I'm 100% agreeing with you. I just think that that's a fun choice to make for your character. I, I think that Han Solo, I think, knows that he's attractive. You know, I don't, I don't think he's like, you know, there's moments where Han Solo, especially in Empire, shows a little bit more of a weakness. But, you know, I, I like, I don't know, I, I like that in my lead character. I think that that makes him more relatable, too. True, although I guess it is a sickness in all of our brains that we only like hot people who don't totally know that they're hot. But interestingly enough, in that classroom, the I love you on her eyelids, that was not in the script. That was something that the uh, first AD came up with. And they just added it into the film. And Spielberg's like, that's my favorite part of the film. But it was something they did, they just came up with on the fly, which is such a, a great thing. I think he was just kind of more just flustered by maybe all these women there just staring at him. Who knows? There are a couple things like that in this movie that happen on accident. Like, you know when the Ark is on the submarine and there's a rat and the rat starts to go a little crazy and walk yeah. in circles? The rat was not trained to go crazy and walk in circles. It was a rat that was deaf, and its trainer was like, yeah, its equilibrium is a little bit off. So it just started walking in circles on its own. That's amazing. Well, (laughs) I mean, look, this is a movie where I think all the animal gods came to play because even the monkey, which is a great uh, character, this this monkey who's kind of a Nazi informant, uh, is able to do a Heil Hitler, and they were able to figure that out by, like, rigging – a grape on a stick, like on a fishing pole, and, and make him like go up, and they were able to get him to do that. But I mean, to get a monkey to do a Hal Hitler is a pretty impressive feat. Yeah, also, wait, I want you to listen to this scene. The monkey is in the scene. You can hear a little mm-hmm. bit of him. It's the scene when Indiana Jones sits down with Belloc after Marion is dead. He sounds like a George Lucas character. See, your taste in friends remains consistent. How odd that it should end this way for us after so many stimulating encounters. Almost regret it. That monkey, I swear to God, sounds just like R2-D2. He's just doing <laughs> a like, I'm your cute comic relief thing. Squeaky, 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 squeak. And those aren't the only references to R2-D2 and C-3PO. As a matter of fact, Jock's plane registration is ob CPO, which is a reference to Obi-Wan Kenobi and C-3PO. And in the Temple of Souls, there is something very interesting on one of the back walls. That is, of course, a little hieroglyph of R2-D2, which you can't really tell. Everything else is period authentic, but uh, a little R2-D2. Let's actually get back to that clip, though. Where shall I find a new adversary so close to my own level? Try the local sewer. You and I are very much alike. Archaeology is our religion. Yet we have both fallen from the pure faith. Our methods have not differed as much as you pretend. I am a shadowy reflection of you. It'll take only a nudge to make you like me. To push you out of the light. Now you're getting nasty. You know it's true. That conversation that he's having with Belloc about you are like me, you just need to push, is so light side, dark side. It's so Star Wars. 
This scene where Belloc is talking to Indy and smoking the hookah is the longest shot in the entire movie. It's one minute and 16 seconds. I mean, which speaks to the pacing of this movie. This movie, from minute one, you are just shot out of a cannon. And I think I know why. This is Spielberg talking about why he decided to do Indiana Jones the way that he did. That's what I told George when I first accepted the project. I said, I'll do the movie, but I'm going to shoot it real fast. Right. Yeah, this isn't, we're I'm not, not going to do 20 on takes on a 14-inch no. dolly shot. And we're not going to spend time getting the girl's hair out of her eye every shot. I was desperate when I made Raiders of the Lost Ark because I was coming off a movie that went wildly over budget and schedule, 1941. Close Encounters, wildly over budget and schedule. And Jaws, of course, went 100 days over schedule and was almost two and a half times the original, the initial budget. And so I really was ready to turn over a new leaf. And Raiders was my chance to prove to myself that I could make a movie you know, responsibly, economically, and under schedule and under budget. So he was basically just trying to make a movie under budget, which is crazy to me. Uh, It worked out so well. I want to go back to the Belloc clip for a second. This is like the only time, and you really feel it, where they're having this conversation. And I do think it is, you know, light meets dark, you know, good meets evil here. And this is seen, this is like the crux of Indy's, uh, conflicted, if you could say anything about his personality, this is the most conflicted he is in this moment. You know, I know a lot of people think that Indiana Jones are these like one-off action adventure movies, but I do think this issue with his character kind of remedies itself in The Last Crusade in that final scene where he's hanging and he can get the grail with one hand or grab his dad's hand in the other and he chooses his dad's hand instead of the grail. It's like the first time we see him go for a person instead of the object. You know, because he's not willing to destroy an object. Even at the end of Raiders, he has the bazooka pointed at the Ark, but he doesn't do it. And in Last Crusade, he does let the cup, the chalice get destroyed. So I thought that's interesting to show that his character does grow. That is sort of beautiful. Although I'm thinking about it, and I'm like, he doesn't care a lot about a lot of his different statues, but I guess <laughs> maybe he just has a thing for brass. <laughs> yeah, because what's happening here is this is, a beat or two after Marion, he thinks, has been blown up. Mm-hmm. And what is kind of marked about this is that Raiders of the Lost Ark takes a really long time to reveal that she is not dead. It right. takes much longer than yes. you think it would take. It really drags it out so that you actually do believe she's dead. And then when she shows up, you're like, oh, my God. Well, it's you don't not even... like blow up and then a minute later, sorry, hi. And you aren't even expecting it when he finds her. And, and that's such a great... I think, again, something that they're taking from the serial idea. Like, she might have been gone for one whole serial and then came back in. Uh, an episode, I should say. Um, but, you know, to what your point is also about, like, Indy's confliction, I think you see that as well in Belloc. I think Belloc is not as bad of a guy as I always thought he was. Oh, I totally agree. Belloc is very much like Indy, the way that you described Indy the top. You know, he is stealing these things and then selling them to a museum for profit. Belloc is getting these things, and then selling them to a person for profit. It's a very subtle, slight difference. But it's interesting that Belloc is always in white, always looks clean, always looks dapper. Indy looks like the mess. It would feel like, traditionally, it should be flipped. You know, the good guy is in white and and, and kind of put together, and the bad guy is the rumpled mess. Is this where we're going to have to talk about how Melania dressed like Belloc when she went to Egypt last week? I loved it. When I saw that, I was like, Belloc! It was great. There's no way you dress like Belloc on accident. Two points. Two or points. Michael Jackson Moonwalker. Either way, I mean. 
You do not wear a Belloc suit without having any idea, I believe, because you have to go on the hunt. It's right. like she went really specifically costume hunting yeah. to find the fedora with the black band. <laughs> and then to have the nerve to be like, why do you talk about my clothing? It's like, well, you deliberately are dressing the way, like Belloc to get yeah, us to talk about it. People so. have never seen anyone dress like that. Interestingly enough, this film, not shot in Egypt. Shot in Tunisia, um, and when like the UPM, the the line producer of the movie was reading through the script, he's like, "Any pyramids in this?" And they're like, "No." He's like, "Great, we'll go to Tunisia." And Tunisia just was a mess for everybody involved. People are getting sick left and right. Uh, Harrison Ford gets caught under the plane, which you have a very close connection to. Like messes up his leg so bad, but they don't trust any of the doctors there that they just like put some ice on it and wrap a band like a bandage around it and get out of here. The only person who doesn't get sick in Tunisia is Spielberg, who brought all this canned food from the UK because he just did not trust going there at all, which is odd because this is where they did Star Wars. I mean, you know, Uncle Owen and Aunt Peru had their house. So they had some familiarity. Maybe Lucas told Spielberg, bring some canned food. Well, you know what's so funny, too, is like they leave Tunisia. They have the airplane thing. They have the car chase. Then they take the boat to the island, and when you show up at this island that looks like a very small dot in the Pacific, it just also looks like Tunisia. It looks like they didn't go anywhere. <laughs> it's like, cool, dry cliff island, sand. Yeah, we got it again. Got it. Same we got place. it. We can knock it out. Um, can we talk about flying? Because this movie, there are things I love about it, and we haven't even gotten into the music, but the flying sequences are my favorite, like the little red dot going around the globe. It's... I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I have anything to say about it besides the fact that I just love that that's how they show transportation. And you you feel like it's a journey. It's a voyage. Like, it doesn't feel easy. Like, for Indiana Jones to get from, you know, California all the way around the world, it, 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 it feels like because it stops at certain points and then goes up again. It, it's a very fun way to show how hard it was to travel back then. Yeah, it stops four times. Yeah. Because they must have had to refuel a lot back then. Of course, or maybe switch flights and, you know, get into different things. Yeah, which is sort of why you're like, Indy, you really went four legs of this journey and you didn't notice the guy reading the newspaper behind you who's obviously, like, spying on you. You didn't notice when you all transferred (laughs) and went to Nepal. Like, oh, that guy again. Hey, sir. And Tot is not a... Uh, very inconspicuous guy. <laughs> he looks like a Nazi. He looks like something weird is going on. Like, what's going on with him? Um, yeah, he's just Peter Lorying all over the place. He's having <laughs> so much fun. I mean, the Tot thing where he comes in to interrogate Marion and he takes out the hanger. Yes, from it, 1941, by the way. Yeah, that was, yeah. And it looks like Dunchucks are like, what's going to happen? It turns out to be a hanger, which also kind of makes no sense because then his aide just holds the hanger to his chest. Like, yeah. he's just holding the coat too. Uh, but yeah, that was a joke that Spielberg liked for 1941. He's like, didn't land as well as I wanted. Let's do it again. But it's a great way to show how this movie can balance like some really broad comedy and then mysticism and action and adventure. It's, you know, I think we're always trying to get to that. Like, what are these films that can do all of those things and yeah, successfully? To just like nail the four quadrant thing. Like, everybody will like this movie. Yeah. But everybody did. I mean, Raiders was like the number one best selling VHS tape. For a really long time. Wow. Because everybody just adored this film. And I think the reason for that is because it's a, you know, technically popcorn movie that is artfully done. I mean, this movie was nominated for a Best Picture Oscar. And when you watch this film, the shots, the cinematography in this movie is absolutely stunning. 
you know, we can go back to the scene we just played with uh, Belloc and Indiana Jones. Like, Indiana Jones is in the front of frame, and you're seeing him pro- profile. Belloc's behind him. You have that scene that's very reminiscent of, uh, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, of Indiana Jones, up in the middle of this desert, and the sun's blaring down. Everything about this movie it is so beautiful to the eye. I mean, it it's beautifully, beautifully shot. You know, let's actually hear from some audiences at the time about what they thought about Indiana Jones when they left the theater. There was a lot of excitement in there, and uh, wait, there was a lot of action. You know, it was never a dull moment in the movie. We need more movies like this, complete escapism, and you can still have fun and laugh and enjoy the whole thing. I think people are ready for it. They're ready just to get into a movie and not have any heavy message. It's a hyped-up movie made by robots for robots. All these people are like sheep coming in, you know, and they're all being scalped for $5 a piece. We don't want to go to movies and see all about everybody else's screwed-up lives, you know. I'm not interested about you and your troubles with your wife. I want to go in there and see snakes running up your leg and all sorts of fun things like that. That, I love that. It's a little borderline sociopathic, the last guy, but yeah. But no, I think think it's probably capturing this time. It's 1981. We're coming out of the 70s where all these movies had messages and were deep and conflicted characters, and sometimes you just want to have fun, but... You want it to also be incredibly entertaining, too. I, I don't know. I, I think it's an interesting rejection of of film while at the same time embracing film. Yeah, but what, what always pops out to me is how much they feel free to be like, let's ignore all the science in the effort of making the most fun movie ever. Yes. Because weird stuff happens in the sound design where I'm like, what are you doing? Like, here, I would have played two really weird things. Okay. One of them is, like, slightly more obvious. This is when Marion is in the Well of Souls, and she stumbles into the corpses, and they're all screaming at her. Oh. And it's like, logically, of course they're not screaming at her. But I will, I'm not saying that as, like, corpses don't scream. I'm saying that as in, this movie doesn't care that corpses don't scream. They're, like, embracing that, and they're going to make them scream. Yes. Hindi! <laughs> So you have that. You have all these corpses screaming all over the place. When Indy's like first climbing through quote unquote South America, yeah. I just keep I just like to put that in quotes because where on earth is it? And I yeah. have no idea. I mean <laughs> like um Alfred Molina is speaking Spanish, so it's not Brazil. I don't know, Peru maybe. But uh but you I swear to God, like as they're going through the jungle, you hear like lions roaring, and I'm right. like, okay, fine, sure. But my favorite one is right here. This is after the car chase. Indy pulls up and the um, the local villagers in Egypt have hidden him in a garage. Right. And then the Nazis pull up. Yeah. Tell me if I'm crazy. You're going to hear a dog in this scene several times. I do not see a dog. There is just a dog sound that they have put in. Yes, and it was all for a dumb joke. This is like one of my favorite dumb jokes. It's like when you throw something and you hear a cat go, meow. Or, but in this, they give him like melons and he throws it to the ground and you're, you have to hear the dog go, ruff, ruff, ruff. and then they do a wide shot. There's no dog anywhere there, but he basically just, they wanted to give a moment to basically be like, oh yeah, the Nazis threw Did you know a- that the Nazis are so bad? But I like that because that seems like an after the movie was shot choice even. Oh yeah. Because it's not even clear that he had to be throwing it at a dog. He could have just been throwing it out like, I don't want this melon. But yeah. somewhere they were like, let's make him even worse. Let's invent a dog only then, with sound and then use it to to make the Nazis seem like bad guys who don't like dogs. And one last sound thing, just as we're having fun mm-hmm. talking about Ben Burt, who did the sound, who I think did a really hilarious job. 
When you hear them take the lid off the ark, yes. and they take the heavy top cover off, mm-hmm. that is Ben Burt taking the cover off his own toilet. Oh, I knew this, and when you hear it now, you can't not think of that. Interestingly enough, 80% of this movie pretty much all ADR'd, which is after the movie was finished shooting, they go into a sound booth and re-record the dialogue, which is a pretty amazing fact that uh, this movie, I think, were connected to these characters that the majority of their dialogue uh, was not gotten correctly on the day. But what do you think about Indiana Jones's signature move of fighting a Nazi, which would be kicking them in the balls? Um, First of all, I want to talk about the fighting in this movie. I love the fighting in this movie because it's sloppy. It doesn't feel choreographed. It feels like old school Western stunt fighting, big swings. It doesn't feel like Indiana Jones is a fighter. And I love that. Like watching it, it's like, it feels so fun to watch something that feels like a real street fight. Uh, and yes, so kicking the balls, I'm all for it. I'm like, I'm all in on this fighting of this movie because it doesn't feel like all of a sudden they all, everyone knows karate. Yeah, he's irritated by fighting. I, I mean, to me, the best fight scene is the plane one because it's oh, where yeah. you see Indy just being like, oh, God, do I have to? And he's yeah. so tired and he doesn't want to get off the plane and yeah. he doesn't want to fight the big German guy. And he cannot really beat the big German guy without kicking him in the nuts and throwing sand in his face. He, he actually responds in the kid zone again of beating him like a playground bully. Yeah. Like if that's the playground bully, he's just got to fight dirty. He doesn't have any other option. But you can tell there that he doesn't like to fight. There's even that little kind of balletic thing where he swings back to take a punch and then just double thinks it and swings back a little bit further. Yeah. I mean, he he's sloppy. Exactly. And look, and I think that great moment that you probably all know, listeners, that, you know, Indiana Jones is supposed to have this scene with this swordsman. And, you know, he was sick that day from food poisoning, Tunisia, and he shoots him instead. That actually paints the character so much better because it's sort of like, why am I getting involved with this guy? I have a gun. Boom. Um, It does, although it's not what we expect from our heroes. Our heroes aren't supposed to kick someone in the balls, and they're not supposed to just shoot a guy instead of having a fair fight. But I think for us, why he's relatable is because we would do that. Yeah. Um, One thing about that swordsman, we always hear that story that Indiana Jones or Harrison Ford was sick, so he had to take out his gun and shoot him. But what's so sad about this story on the other side is that guy trained for three months for that sword fight scene. And I saw a lot of the um, the storyboards of it. It was going to be this amazing scene through the market where the sword was like cutting through, you know, stands and people were backing up and things were, were catching on fire. It looked to be an amazing, fun sequence. But I think because he doesn't fight him, the fight scene with the guy on the plane even has more weight to it because it's rare that they get into fisticuffs in this movie. I I like that. Yeah, you're right. It's like a choice or an accidental choice since it was made for them between character and spectacle. Yes. We've been making fun of the Nazis as well. We should. We should always Mm -hmm. make fun of Nazis. But, you know, the U.S. government doesn't come across great here either. You have a chubby baby face guy who doesn't really want to tell Harrison Ford anything, too lazy to really do it. Like, we got our top men working on this. We care. We care. I swear. I mean, those guys... It's a great scene. It's it's so much exposition. I mean, talk about an exposition dump. Well, the well, city of Tannis is one of the possible resting places of the Lost Ark. The Lost Ark? Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant, the chest the Hebrews used to carry around the Ten Commandments. What do you what mean, do you mean the, commandments? You're talking about the Ten Commandments? Yes, the actual Ten Commandments, the original stone tablets that Moses brought down out of Mount Harab and smashed, if you believe in that sort of thing. You think you guys ever go to Sunday school? 
they sit back and it's like, here we go, guys. Here is a, I'm going to explain everything to you. Because the Ark of the Covenant, I think at this point, is a, a, a kind of a, a concept that probably is not in people's, you know, mind. I mean, actually, Philip Kaufman, who I think was working with this team in the beginning to come up with the story points for uh, Raiders, was fascinated by it because his childhood dentist used to tell him the story about the Ark of the Covenant. And he was like, you should use that in the movie. Uh, and that's how they kind of came on this thing, which feels like it has some weight in history, but it's not something that's known in history. Sort of like Bonnie and Clyde, sort of like selecting Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. We know them now so well because of the movie, but it was right. on that cusp of like, yeah, there's a dim holding awareness of, of Bonnie and Clyde is not major right now. Uh, I mean, I always love talking about like the serendipity of these things, how, how the quote unquote greatest movies are kind of accidental sometimes mm-hmm. and how Indiana Jones is named after a dog. You know, yes. I love all of that stuff. And he was supposed to be Indiana Smith. I mean, that was the first name was that they had for him. I know. Name. Terrible name. But they were trying to get them very Americana, you know? Indiana Smith. Indiana Smith. is, is so pl- It seems so plain. Yeah. I mean, Jones is the second most common last name in America. Smith is number one. I know this because right. my mom is a Jones. Yeah. I don't know what three is. Like white, maybe? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, you're right. All these like little choices. Like, what if Marion was Sean Young instead of, you know, Karen Allen? It it would have just changed all these things just slightly. But that's that's the version that we'll never know. And maybe it would have been better with Tom Selleck. I, I think that you just have to see how it all comes together. We only know this version. I mean, we never have seen Back to the Future with Eric Stoltz. It's assumed it would be terrible. But you know, that's, we don't know. We don't know because we've never actually, we've seen it, but we've never actually heard it. Maybe Tom Selleck and Sword Fight Guy have like gotten together for beers and been like, we got robbed. We uh, were both supposed to be movie stars and it did not happen. And look, there's a lot of bad ideas that they could have done too in this movie that they didn't do. Tout, uh was supposed to have a mechanical arm with a built-in machine gun. What? Yes. That and but that seems very serial to me. That seems like very much like Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, which was again like ripping off Indiana Jones or serials, I should say, but also Indiana Jones. Like I think that they pulled back at the right points that it felt still relatable. They they I think grounded the serial in a way that made it have all the exciting nature of it without kind of the fanciful dumb stuff. And I think all those choices is why people love this movie and are so inspired by this movie. And you talked earlier about these kids who are very much like Steven Spielberg, who decided they were going to recreate Raiders of the Lost Ark. Let's listen to a little clip from this film. Which now brings us to our guest today, who along with you, have a hand in Raiders history. Okay, so Paul, we're about to sit down with somebody that I have spent a lot of time with in Mississippi. He is probably the biggest Raiders of the Lost Ark fan I have ever met. Uh, Should we? uh, Let's just jump in. Guy Klander, tell people how we know each other. Uh, Well, Amy and I met in Mississippi uh, for a film called Raiders the Adaptation. This was kids that in the 80s had reshot everything from Raiders of the Lost Ark over seven summers of their their life. However, they never did their big airplane scene. Uh, I saw it as an adult. There's a great documentary you can watch about uh, how they did their thing. But um, they chose to go back and do the airplane scene. I was brought on 
uh, to help out with that, uh, to make sure it looked just the way it was. And Amy was doing a story for the, um, the LA, Weekly. LA Weekly at the time. I didn't know that she was <laughs> that that was what she was there for. I thought she was a volunteer. Five minutes in, <laughs> I hand her a paintbrush and say, hurry up, we got to go get this thing done. And so for the next hour, her and I painted <laughs> wow. stuff on the set. Uh, and so you did. really did have a hand in completing this film, which is amazing. You definitely have to check out. Uh, I loved it. It's, uh, it's so cool. But you are, I guess, the I would say the biggest Raiders fan Ever. Well, I would say, I want to give Guy some oh, yeah. credit and some context here. Yeah. I would say that Guy is part of why the film got finished. Because when okay. they first showed the Raiders of the Lost Ark adaptation, he shows up nine hours early before the movie starts. Uh-huh. And then when they do the Q&A, you raise your hand and you say, well, when are you going to do the airplane scene? Can I be the bald guy? Can I be in the airplane Whoa. scene? And you, as a fan, really egged them on to complete this film. Yeah, yeah. I had, I had said... You know, hey, do I need a new car? No. Instead, right. I would spend my money to do this. Um, and they poo-pooed the idea. Um, and it was when they were approached to do the documentary uh, that the uh, gentleman doing the documentary said, you should really do this last scene. Yeah. Uh, and and lo and behold, I find myself in June in Mississippi, which is very warm, uh, to uh, to make an airplane and blow it up. Which we did. The airplane did. was 78 Which... feet long. Wow. It yes. was massive. It was perfect. It was the flying. <laughs> Made it, of it was, steel. <laughs> yeah. It was an airplane that actually never really existed, an airplane that they kind of made up. And Correct. then we just made it up. So talk to me about your fascination about Raiders. I mean, obviously, we all have movies that kind of affect us. But when was the first time you saw it? And then what kind of clicked over? Like, when did you realize? Um, well, I, I'd been a Harrison Ford fan since Han Solo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here comes this new movie with the actor I like. Um, and it was really that Drew Struzan art oh, poster. I love it. And him. I think, uh, you know, at that time, it was the poster that you saw and you went, I'm seeing this. Yeah. You know, you rode your bike past a movie theater and went, oh, my goodness, that I want to see whatever that is. Um, and so it was that. Within two years, my family traveled to California for the first time. We were in Tijuana, and I bought a bullwhip for $5. And I can tell you the quality of that was not very good. Uh, So when I went to swing over a ravine, snap, (laughs) down I went. Uh, My mother quickly explained to me, well, you're not Indiana Jones, are you? And how many times conservatively would you say you have seen Raiders? Uh, Well, theatrically, it's over 100. And as far as home viewings... Uh, I that one I wouldn't know. Right. I'll tell you the the airplane scene I've watched thousands of times. Yeah, and um, tell us about reconstructing the actual arc and how you were freeze framing it to figure out what. The oh dimensions yeah, were. yeah. Um, well, the arc uh, we didn't have to to build. I mean, the, the kids had done that, but they did need to have the outside uh, of it, which has a large swastika right. on it. Yeah, and, and German writing, and we knew that that scene had to go back in. So I had a photograph. In a, in a Lucas book that said, well, the prop was this wide by this tall. And I said, well, if I had an overhead projector, I could shoot it on the wall and I can measure each little board. Right. That's how, you know, where does the nails go? What does the stencil look wow. like? And I found myself doing that for hours on the wall, uh, not realizing, however, that I had my windows open. So here was a bald man uh, in the front window <laughs> drawing a large swastika. For hours on his wall. So uh, I didn't have to worry about my neighbors ever parking in my space uh, or their TV too loud. Right, I right. think I was, after that point, oh pretty much God. ignored. Now, the first time I met you, I remember you just running through Indiana Jones's wardrobe in astounding detail. Like, I mentioned shoes to you, and you knew all of these facts about shoes. Like, what are the things we didn't even notice about shoes? 
Oh, uh, well, those are the Alden 405s. Those are a wonderful pair of shoes. Um, And they actually were Harrison Ford. Those were his own shoes. Right. Um, They were just a work boot uh, that he had worn. These are ones that you could really go to town on. And he had for a long time. And they said, "Eh, they they look good. They look period. So he kept them. And those became uh, his thing. Uh, But when Chris came on to be fitted in all his wardrobe, he was amazed that when he went to go put it on and he looked fantastic that I said, you tied the shoes wrong. And he said, what do you mean? Because it has little eyelets on yeah. the top. And I said, well, he doesn't do that. He skips the top two eyelets. you got to wrap them twice around. They tie to the left. <laughs> Why do I know this? I don't know. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, it just is a part of you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I can't imagine them doing it without you because you are the biggest expert I've ever met. You've done consulting for toy companies about is this Indian? Yeah, is, yeah, does this work or this isn't right? Um, little like, things like, like that. Like, what do people get wrong when they depict Indy? Um, Harrison, as, as much as we know exactly what he looks like, there's not so many distinct things. He's apparently probably the hardest thing to nail in, in, in toys. If you were to ask Hot Toys or Sideshow or Hasbro or anybody else, making it look like Harrison Ford is one of the hardest things to do. It really is tricky because I know as a, as a kid, like I only wanted like Harrison Ford action figures, but Han Solo looks nothing, nothing like, like Han Solo. Yeah. And and I had the best action figure I ever had was Temple of Doom had these like they were bigger the figures. Large, yeah. Yes, they were about five inches, the large, large yeah. clunky ones and that had the rivets for the arms. Here's a dumb question because we're in Halloween time. I would imagine you might have given this some thought. What would you pick if you couldn't go as Indiana Jones? Like a, a fun maybe side character that doesn't get enough love or play. Yeah. Um and actually, I do have the costume. Um, it would be the pilot uh, who was played by Frank Marshall. Oh. And when I was asked after I was originally brought on to just artistic consult, they said, no, you're going to kind of produce this with us. Um, Frank Marshall was the producer on Raiders. Everyone was sick. And somebody had to be the pilot that shoots the gun at him during the big fight scene. Yeah. And they said, OK, well, now you're going to be that guy. Um, and so a screen-accurate flight suit, all made of wool yeah. uh, for Mississippi weather, <laughs> um, was made for me. And uh, I would I would wear that. I still have. I love it. That's a great, good character. I love that a lot. I mean, to talk about the detail work of redoing this scene, you guys noticed that there were continuity errors, that, like, different crates in the background move around. Yes. And you duplicated the continuity errors. Yes, yeah. I mean, it was, my thing was not only to make sure that the film looked the way right. Raiders did, but that all of the mistakes that were in there were put back in as well. There are barrels that move around. The rock that he pushes out, for some reason, is back up there again. So. There's like a, a passed out Eric yes. guy who gets like knocked out. That's like a vestigial fist fight that they yeah. ended up cutting out of the movie. But they put that guy in well, the yeah. background knocked yeah, out anyways, even though the, it uh, makes no sense. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, my friend who built it with me uh, was put in makeup. so he would. Uh, and we were actually going to film the fight scene because there was a yeah. – it was shot where he comes out, pushes the rock out. The guy's standing there going, what are you doing? Right. And he punches him in the face. And he was a lot of a lot of punching in the face there. Actually, speaking of that, are there other deleted scenes? Because I, I don't really uh, know that much. Probably the, the most known deleted scene is the submarine. Mm-hmm. We've always got – why – how does he – does he jump into the submarine? Yeah. Um, he actually ties himself to this periscope with the whip. And that would have worked because at the time you, a submarine didn't really submerge unless it had to. Okay. So it's not as though the thing dives deep in the water and he would have drowned. No, it's just he needed to keep himself on there. 
this project of like being with you and remaking the scene just really blew my mind when thinking about what all goes into making a movie and how impossible it is to really make a movie shot for shot. We just did Psycho in last week's episode and talked about that remake. No matter what you do, you could never reproduce a fly going into Belloc's mouth. That it's almost impossible. There's this like weirdly religious almost impossibility yeah, yeah. to it. And, and that's why – I think you don't see as many shot-for-shot remakes, but you see the homage uh, to them. In fact, one of my favorite shots from Raiders is him in the sunset putting on the hat when they're digging for the Well of the Souls. Well, Lawrence of Arabia was Spielberg's favorite movie. And the movie he said, once he saw that, he thought, well, I'll never be able to make a movie. I can't make anything look that great. And you look at how frequently he does these beautiful sunset shots. And I, I still think it's a desert scene. It's your hero in the sunset, so I think that's his 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 homage to that. You know, like on an emotional level, like being there, helping us build this plane, which we never really got to have this like download about it, because the day that we blew up the plane was actually pretty awful. Somebody got hurt. Somebody yeah, it was. Went to the it hospital. was. It was also that um, we had run over schedule, so the pyrotechnic crew, everyone was gone. So it was just the one guy, myself, and two other guys. Um, who were kind of shown the ropes. And so when things didn't go yeah. as planned, um, you know, we had a lot of self-blame. And um, then it was, okay, thank goodness this person is okay. But then we're shuttling people off to an airport. So there was no real right. uh, decompress that we ever Yeah, really we never got really to, got to decompress. To, uh, and I never it. really got to ask you, like, about just the feeling of building this perfect thing, building mm-hmm. this plane, which is something nobody else has ever done, and then blowing it up. I th- think the excitement going into doing it was was definitely there. Like, oh my goodness! And then there was parts of you going, "Well, it's it's going to be gone." Um, but uh, when it didn't blow up, I think was the bigger thing. That was this: I've failed you. And I think myself, I know I personally took it as though I had failed them. And you know, when we, when it was finally all said and done, and actually did work, um, to see the finished product was. Was amazing because what what happens so people can picture it is, you know, Indy's running away with Marion from the plane. It's supposed to blow up right when they get past this radius, and it didn't. And then the main pyrotechnics guy, who was not you, he was a local guy. This was it was his job to make it blow up. Walked up to be like, I'll make it explode, but the plane was sort of still sputtering on fire, and we're oh. kind of freaked out. And as he's walking up to try to make it really blow up, then it blows up, and he gets oh. blown backwards. He does a somersault. It's, yeah. Yeah, he, he's knocked unconscious for a bit, and it yeah. was really yeah. terrifying. He, he regrets doing that. Uh, <laughs> his, his biggest problem is, is uh, for that was when they cut off his T-shirt, which right. was a custom-made T-shirt for the pyro crew. Um, he was displeased that the EMTs did that. But the EMTs didn't know that something had gone wrong because we're filming an action movie. Right. So a thing blows up and a guy goes flying. They're like, hey, I guess they got their shot. Yeah. And I suddenly start screaming you know, and motioning to get over here, get over here. So Our makeup um, girl had been in the Israeli army, so she was the first person out there to be like, this is a problem. Whoa. Yeah. 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 By the way, could you tell people what you're wearing right now? Could you describe oh, it? Oh, uh, yeah, this is a, a hockey jersey. Uh, it's a place called Geeky Jerseys, uh, and they do custom jerseys, and this is one uh, for the uh, Lost Ark Raiders. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yes, it has the year of the film and the Jones on the back and his little idols and things like and that. And you also brought us dates to eat and a date-infused uh, – Date-infused old fashions. Um, yes, wow. if you want to drink like Indiana Jones, uh, it's Jack Daniels that he drinks in Marion's Bar. 
It is uh, Johnny Walker Black that he uses to smash the guy over the head uh, with. And when he thinks Marion is dead, uh, he's drinking from what the first Jack Daniels bottle looked like. Wow. Uh, on there. So, yes, I do have those. Well, I'll have some. Poor yes, Mesa. Yeah, of course. Of course, <laughs> gladly. Um, where can people find you? What can? Uh, how can people see what you do and, and where you are? And- oh, well, uh, look me up on, on Facebook or uh, Twitter or Instagram, uh, Guy Clender, and um, Mint on Card Productions. Okay. Which is a, a, a name for my lust for toys that are in their perfect, perfect world. World, so I love it. Well, guys, it has been awesome to get to hang Thank out with you, you guys. Oh, it's spectacular to talk to you about the greatest movie of all time. In honor of National Coming Out Day last week, we wanted to tell you about the show Homophilia on Earwolf. Uh, Homophilia is a great show. It's a queer comedy party where hosts Dave Holmes and Matt McConkie grill LGBTQ celebrities on what they're loving and who they're loving. It's just uh, this show should be on TV. It's just a really fun, uh, charismatic pairing of two people that I really like a lot. Dave Holmes is just a lovely, hilarious guy. Uh, and Matt McConkie is somebody that I know uh, personally and is just fantastic on the show. Yeah, the interviews they have with people just really make these people come to life in ways I hadn't even known yeah. before. You know, Margaret Cho, you got Trixie Mattel from Drag Race, you got John Lovett, everybody knows him huge yeah. from Pod Save America. And it's just such a great way of hanging out and really getting to talk to somebody, really getting to know all about them in different in different ways. And I got to tell you that after listening to these episodes, I feel like I'm getting like up on stuff that I should have been getting up on. Like I feel like I'm I'm actually like, "Oh yeah, I should be reading and knowing about this too." So, uh, episodes are released every Friday just in time for the weekend. So get smarter, get more pop culture savvy, and listen and subscribe to Homophilia now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, what makes all of that so, 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 so impressive with remaking it is really just that these stunts are so tactile. Like, we mm-hmm. got to talk about the car chase. Oh, because wow. Because it's a great car chase. It's it's so everywhere. It's so like in the car, out the car, around the back. Who is here? It speeds up. It slows down. It's dialogue free. It's yeah. pretty silent. And he uses the car like a battering ram. I mean, that car chase. Wait, here. This is actually Harrison Ford on the day he was going to shoot the car chase. Harrison, have you ever done anything like this? Dragging behind a car? Dragging behind a car. Dragging behind a car. No? It's just uh, one more useless experience. <laughs> that is amazing. I love that. We, we cannot close out without talking about the very ending, which is not stunt-based. It is no. crazy special effect-based. Yes. And the, the image that probably lived in my mind as a child for the longest, the melting faces. Which they did with hair dryers. It's so crazy. And gelatin faces. It does look like a jello mold. And Tot's scream is my favorite. It's such a baby kind of scream. Like, ah! You know, it's, like, it's, it's so anti the bad guy who seems to be so tough. It's a great, uh, it's a great, like, wimpy scream. I love I know, it. No, but I do feel bad seeing Belloc's head explode. I mean, I guess not oh. that much. You're working with Nazis, you get to have your head explode. But still, you know, that little bit, there's a bit when the ghost kind of flies up to yes. them. Yes. And then she flickers. It reminded me so much of Psycho when you get that tiny glimpse of the Ooh. skull face of the mom. Yes. And it's like, da-da-da-da, click. Well, you know what it reminded me of? And I thought 
Wow. I wonder if Raiders and Ghostbusters are part of the same shared universe because that ghost that comes up to camera is the blowjob ghost that is in the scene in Ghostbusters where Ray Stance gets his zipper undone. And I'm like, that is the same exact ghost. Is that from the Well of Souls? I want to know. But if you look, I need a side-by-side comparison of blowjob ghosts from Ghostbusters to Raiders ghost out of the ark. I think they are exactly the same. Paul, Ghostbusters is how we met. Oh, yeah, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) So, Amy, the way the movie ends is the Ark being stored in a box and put in a warehouse full of crates. And we asked you, our listeners, to call and tell us what were in those crates. Let's take a listen. Um, I think that the crates at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark are full of the unsellable copies of the E.T. Atari video game. The crates contain King Kong's bones, the sorcerer attack from Fantasia, and Dorothy's shoes from The Wizard of Oz. The coordinates to the Templar treasure Nicolas Cage found on the back of the Declaration of Independence. I don't know, maybe we find out that archive has been housing Jimmy Hoffa this whole time. Probably the Snyder Cut of Justice League. Am I right, Internet? Doc Brown's DeLorean. I'd love to see the story of how it got there. I'm going to say that it's Trump's tax returns. Photos of women's ankles deemed just a little too risque for the 40s. I imagine the device that Tesla had created that would allow us to pluck electricity out of the air. Uh, Some other kind of uh, technology that basically is being held back because White industrial men are saying, no, 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 that's going to be okay for me making my money. Which one would you open? Oh, man. I feel like I would open Zack Snyder's Justice League because there's no way it's good. <laughs> All right? I just, want to, I just want to pop that balloon. I want to pop it right now. And Trump's tax returns, I get it. They're going to be skewed. I mean, but it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't make a difference. I don't care. I'm going for him anyways just you to really? make him mad. Just to make him mad. I can't <laughs> help it. So, Amy, before we wrap up officially, I need to talk about one thing, because I think if we didn't talk about it, people would be all over us, and that is, of course, Insectgate. You know what I'm talking about when Belloc eats the fly in the movie. What's your theory? Does he eat this fly? What what do you think? Because I have some insider information. You do? Mm Mm-hmm. Because I don't see how you could talk with a fly in your mouth. I like, I've, I've always admired the look in his eye, how he doesn't seem to blink or react to it. Yeah. I've always been like, that's almost scary. I've also thought, you know, Belloc, the real human being, would be like, oh, a fly, and like brush it away. Yeah. It's, it's very strange. I also agree. And I was reading an interview with the actor who played Belloc, and he said that what they did in that scene was edit a few frames out. So it looks like the fly went in his mouth. They just, the fly flew away, but they wanted to make him look a little bit more like a badass. So they edited it so it looked like he ate a fly. So it was an intentional cut. The fly did fly away. But I thought that was so interesting because I don't know if it even makes him look tough as much as it makes him look weird. Yeah, badass is not the word I would use. I mean, salamandarian, perhaps. (laughs) Or Marlon Brandarian, uh, because doesn't he eat a fly in Apocalypse Now, or is that just in the dock? Uh, (laughs) <laughs> but I, I know we had to address it. So that is the final answer. He does not eat a fly. It's creative editing. Once again, the editors come in to play. So, I mean, all in all, Amy, do you believe 
that this movie belongs on the list. It, it obviously nominated for Best Picture, uh, won four Oscars, Best Art Direction, Set Direction, Sound, Film Editing, Visual Effects, nominated for Best Picture, Director, Cinematography, Music, and Original Score. It's a shame that John Williams didn't win for this because it is, and we didn't really talk about talk about him that much. We talked about him a lot in ET, but it's a great score. Yeah, it has yeah. so many really clear, distinct themes. Of course, the dun 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 dun. But the ones yes. I really like are like the Marion theme, which is sort of like prodding and romantic. Yeah. The cryptic, mysterious, supernatural theme yeah. that zooms in. Maybe that is how the script does such a good job of getting us through all these emotions. Is he's basically cueing us? He's like, here you go. This is the feeling. This yes. is that one. But he does it so clearly in this one, and yet the music's so great, I don't think you mind. No, I mean, I think this is John Williams again at the top of his game. Some interesting facts about those Oscar stats I gave you. It's the only Best Picture Oscar nominee not to be nominated in any of the writing categories. So that's interesting. Um, it's also the Best Picture Oscar nominee to um, that year to be also nominated for Best Visual Effects. So that's an interesting thing. Um, it's the only Best Picture Oscar nominee that didn't get nominated in any of the acting categories. Really? So very interesting. It's a very lone wolf film. You know, it's it's picture and director and music and special effects, yeah. but nothing else. It feels really patronizing when you look at how they broke it down that way. Yeah. Like. Uh, Empire Magazine says this is the number two a movie of all time in their 500 greatest movies of all time. It's been included in the 1001 movies you must see before you die. Uh, Roger Ebert put it on his great movie list. And on the IMDb chart, which we talk about a lot, where do you think it falls? This is 66 on AFI. It's probably higher than that, right? Yes. Yeah. Is it is it top 20? No. I was surprised. I thought it would be a little bit higher. But it is higher. It's 45, number 45. 45. 45. Respectable 45. Well, here's a person who really hated Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay. I could read this whole review, but we will be here for the entire rest okay. of this episode. It is the one and only Pauline Kale. Oh, whoa. I might just read a bunch of like random insults out just sporadically like machine gun fire because that she so would have hated it. Oh, she really hated it. Wow. Okay, here we go. Okay. She loves the beginning. She loves the beginning. She says the beginning is so great, so thrill-packed. You don't have time to breathe or enjoy yourself. She likens it to seeing a hit number in a musical that's so great you don't want the show to go on. You just want the show to go again. Right. Uh, but then she says that Spielberg, having gone sky high at the start, must have at least 17 other climaxes to come. And the movie isn't going to be an adventure but a competition. Spielberg versus Spielberg. She says that Spielberg rushes. He cuts corners. He takes the edge off plot points. She's never before seen him settle for approximations before or just throw effects at you, hoping that some of them stick. She was really mm-hmm. mad, like, for example, that the, when the monkey dies with, with the date. Yeah. Oh, when he throws that date up in the air, it's so 2001, isn't oh, it? Oh, amazing. And you know what? That whole date scene reminded me of a Hitchcock movie, Rope, where you know the date is poisoned. We've seen it being poisoned. And you watch the character basically carry it around. Like, you can't take your eyes off that poisoned date. You don't know how he's going to get out of it. And it's a great it, – it actually feels so uh, Hitchcocky to me. It reminded me of Rope. It's really true. But she felt very strongly that having had so many scenes with this monkey that we cared about, to have it just die like that kind of quickly, kind of far away, yeah. she felt like that, that scene should have been better. Interesting. I thought that scene's great. Here she has a bunch of, like, plot quibbles. She says, why is the Well of Souls where the Ark is buried so exposed that it could have hardly escaped discovery before? Why isn't Indy's dig at least over the next ridge from Belloc oh, so we can stop. believe that Belloc doesn't spot it till the creature Because moment? his staff was a little bit shorter. It was oh. the wrong length. Why are we shown scenes that prepare us for Belloc to have a change of heart when he doesn't? 
He does brutally uh, die. Yeah. She says that John Williams's pounding score could be just the music from any old Tarzan movie, though with a fuller orchestra and ten wow. times the volume, and she calls it clunky. Oh, wow. I have to argue a couple of these points. First of all, I think that they're setting up that Indy would have a change of heart, not Belloc. And I think that there has to be a, a certain suspension of disbelief. I thought the fact that the two dig sites were so close to each other was simply because the staff was just slightly bigger or smaller. I don't remember exactly what it was. But that's why. I, I mean, look, if you're not in the right mindset, you're not going to enjoy it. Does she have this kind of opinion on all like, kind of popcorny movies? I mean, she's impossible to predict. She's impossible to predict. She really likes Belloc. Okay. She loves Belloc. She points out that he eats a fly. Right. Um, but then she says that this movie has no space for sex. When Marion and Indy finally kiss, the music rises with such a clatter and shriek you think the theater has been nuked. Wow. Oh, yeah. Which, by the way, it is funny that they do totally bone, but Spielberg right. is like, let's not really be aware of oh, that. She'll movie. just take her yeah. sleep off and like she'll be like, not Nick. But anyways. Um, she says, there's nothing at stake in Raiders. No revelation, no surge of feeling at the end. Despite its daring surface, Raiders is timid movie making. The film seems terrified of not giving the audiences enough thrills to keep them happy. Interesting. I mean, look, everyone's got opinions. That's a really interesting one, though, because she really just doesn't like anything about it. Yeah, she goes hard, and this would be why, in Willow. Have you seen Willow? Uh, yes, of course. The skull face evil guy played by Pat Roach, the yeah. bald, the bald German from in here. Yeah. Is named General Kale. They did not uh, get over this. They were very mad. Of course. I mean, look, Spielberg, notoriously uh, thin-skinned. Um, one of the best things I've ever seen, it's online. We'll talk about it when we get to the Jaws episode, is his reaction to finding out that Jaws was not nominated for Best Picture. But let's save that for that episode. I mean, this movie is just wall-to-wall endless fun. Yeah. Endless fun. Which leads me to this bigger issue. We've been talking about these movies. They're... You know, impact they make on culture. And it seems like this is a movie that you could argue is much more a cultural submission. I, I don't know if this is on the same line as Citizen Kane, but they're both enjoyable. This is a popcorn fun film. You can't deny that. You know, I think Singing in the Rain feels like that too. You know, it's, it's a fun film. So maybe, you know, this idea that they should be like, the quintessential best film has to kind of be taken away and, and more it's about what are the movies that affected culture and changed culture and, you know, put me in an Indiana Jones costume and makes that score. The minute you hear it, you know exactly what it is. Um, it's true. I think, I think that's the only reason why I sort of have this tiny hesitation about it, honestly, mm -hmm. because I really got worried when I was like researching this piece about these kids remaking Raiders of the Lost Ark. I got really obsessed with this idea of, what changed in our generation when we were able to, like, make Raiders the number one VHS tape yeah. and, like, watch Raiders nonstop? And we are in, like, still, I think, this post-Raiders world, and we're just redoing Raiders is, and we're just redoing mm -hmm. all of this. Are we stunting our imagination by having this movie come out in a VHS age? Has our, mm -hmm. generation, has our generation never grown up from mm -hmm. this movie? Which worries me. And it worries me not because I don't like this movie. It just worries me on my larger scale of somebody who wants more random creativity in the world. And I remember one of my favorite things doing this piece about these kids remaking this movie is I interviewed uh, Quentin Tarantino about it. Um, you know, because he's a guy who loves his things and is always showing his influences. But he was talking about how he grew up a little bit right before he had a v VCR. And so when he was a kid, what he would do is he would buy the score to movies that he loved. And he would lie in his room and he would just imagine the scenes of the movie that he enjoyed because oh, wow. he couldn't watch it again. 
And so he would imagine the scenes and then he would always wind up writing his own scenes. And I think Spielberg got to do that too. He got to like see what he loved and then imagine his own thing and make it over and over and over again. And I feel like something in us is just stuck because we're not using our imagination anymore. We're just hitting rewind. I I agree with that. I I think that that's a larger issue with all of our culture. I think why read a book when BuzzFeed can write the thing, the takeaways from it, or why think about a movie when you can just rewatch it. Or if you're on set and you want to create something that feels like this shot, you can just pull it up on your phone and, and, and kind of go shot for shot for it. As a kid, when I was growing up, I loved Star Wars so much that after the movie, I remember after Return of the Jedi, I had my stepsister uh, write everything I could remember in chronological order. So I could read it back and remember it all. But it was like after the movie, I just was like, I needed to like debrief with her so I could have a record of this film. I love that. Yeah, so it was like the way I wanted to do it. And it's like, and I would argue though, that we're always living in a culture where it adapts to what we have. Like what's the next thing? And hopefully we keep on breaking breaking the shackles of our creativity and finding new ways to tell stories and letting people let us tell stories in new ways. It's true. So you're saying that you believe it belongs on the list. I mean, it's a great fucking movie. Yeah. I mean, I can't dispute it. And this is a movie where I would argue it it doesn't uh, all the trilogy belong on this list, you know, or the 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 franchise of them. I, I think it's, this is the best one, hands down. I like a lot of things about every other one, every other one so far. But this is the one where it's kind of a great, I mean, it's it's definitely indicative of a very certain era and, and I think influenced so many things after it. What do you think it influenced? The Simpsons. Oh, I I am sure that there has to be multiple, multiple clips. It did. There are many, 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 many references to Raiders of the Lost Ark and The Simpsons. A lot of them are visual. You know, there's an right. episode that opens up with Bart doing his own, like, grabbing the change and like, mm-hmm. running through and all the obstacle courses. <laughs> But then I decided to go for one that was a little less. So this is from the episode, How Munched Is That Birdie in the Window? And it is just a little throwaway line between Marge and Lisa. Sweetie, everyone has an animal they can't stand. Indiana Jones had snakes. The grizzly man had grizzlies. And, you know, I'm not crazy about opossums. I love it. Um, Well, Amy, I think we have done as much as we could do. There's so many resources. If you love Indiana Jones, I highly suggest that you read the 107-page transcript of the story conference between Kasdan, Lucas, and Spielberg. It's a great way to think about brainstorming. Uh, I look at it often. Um, Just the way that they kind of develop ideas, go in and out of ideas, come back to things, what they created and, and where it starts to where it ends is amazing. And I want to drink more of that delicious fig, uh, what is it, bourbon or whiskey? It was so good. I, I would like to buy that. I, I, I've been, wow, I want that. Paul, what are we going to do next week? Should I roll the little roll die? Roll that D. Let's do it. I hit my coffee cup going over there and it, it uh, it's 66 again. What? That's insane. So... <laughs> Ah, it picked the same movie. That freaks me out. I uh, like that. Is this like the, the uh. <laughs> All right, so it, roll, it wants us to watch Raiders again. Wow. Um, no, it's you know what? Mad, I think? It's Matt, Polly and Gale. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> I think what we should do when we hit this problem because we have a hundred sided die, we're going to hit this a lot. We should uh, either go up or go down, and I think let's run down to sixty five, which is 
African queen. Are you cool with that? I'm cool with that. I'm still creeped out, though. So, <laughs> I mean, I guess I'm not cool on, like, a larger level. You know, I've never seen African Queen. It's, a, it's something that I know. It's Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn. But I know nothing about this movie. I, I think probably a lot of our listeners may not either. Should we do an old-fashioned? Give us a call and tell us what you think the African Queen is about. And I'll do the same. I'll write it down before I watch the movie. Uh, Let's do it. It's been a minute since we played this game. We've had, like, yeah. E.T. and Raiders. Let's go all four. All right. I love it. And you can give us a call at? 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. Well, thank you so much for listening. We cannot wait to hear those. Uh, also, a big continued thanks to Morgan Messenheimer, who is helping us with some of our research here. Please remember to rate and review this podcast. It helps with all the things that are important, like uh, ratings and getting us out there. And um, what else should I say? Follow us on our Facebook group, which is uh, Unspooled. You can go to our website at unspooledpod.com and our Twitter page, which is at Unspooled. Very true. And also, they are still doing our thing on the Facebook group where they are watching the movie together at a set time. So if you're interested in that, get on in. Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season 3 has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, Season 3 is a great jumping on point, and we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nights. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, Yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. (laughs) Jesus. I mean, (laughs) Jazos. Ruler of the Eighth Circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... I made the charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh, hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.